0: You are listening to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote, with Rabbi Jesse Olitsky and friends, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about this and other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. And don't forget to vote. Welcome to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Votes. I'm your host, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky of Congregation Bethel in South Orange, New Jersey. We understand that the Jewish vote is not monolithic, and in each episode, we'll be focusing on a different issue at stake in November's upcoming election. Today's episode, we'll be discussing mass incarceration, policies at stake, and what our Jewish tradition says about how we treat those, and what our criminal justice system looks like, and what we should strive for it to look like. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Rabbi Hilly Haber and Evie Litwak. Rabbi Hilly Haber serves as Director of Social Justice Organizing and Education at Central Synagogue in New York City, served as an educator and chaplain at Rikers Island, and is currently one of the rabbinic chaplains at Northern State Prison in Newark. Full disclosure, Hilly is also a neighbor and friend, and her spouse serves as my rabbinic partner here at Beth El in New Jersey. And we're also so excited to have with us Evie Litwock. Evie is founder and executive director of Witness to Mass Incarceration, WMI. Welcome, Evie. It's great to have both of you with us.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thanks, Rabbi O. Uh, Evie, I'd love to start with you, if that's OK, to share a little bit about what Witness to Mass Incarceration is, what led you in your story to start this organization.
1: So let me begin by uh, saying thank you for inviting me and um, a little bit about me. I am a formerly incarcerated Jewish lesbian and a child of two survivors of the Holocaust. And I say these, uh, I describe these intersections because they had a great impact on my being inside prison. I spent time in two federal women's prisons and solitary confinement. I'm a baby of the women's movement, the gay rights movement, the civil rights movement. So I have spent a lifetime being an activist. But nothing radicalized me more than probably the first day, the first hour, and my entire experience in prison. Just so you understand the extent of my involvement, I was arrested in 1997. It took 12 years to take me to trial. I lost a trial, was incarcerated. My conviction was overturned. I was out in the free world for two years but one count was vacated, which meant they could come back after me again. They did. I went, I knew I would lose it again, but I wouldn't plead guilty and make a deal with them. So I went to prison a second time, and in 2017, I was off probation, which means I spent 20 years in the justice-involved system, and I was exposed to everything uh, from pretrial to the transportation system at Con Air, where they fly you around in a plane that's so dangerous I wouldn't put anybody in it, um, to seeing how the entire system works. I was exposed to the entire system. And the minute I got into prison, I knew I had left the free world. Uh, The first day, the first hour you're there, you're given an ID, you're a number, and you're taken immediately in for a strip search. So for me, at age 60, entering as an elderly person, it was difficult, but I had to stand with a woman who ordered me to get undressed in front of her, ordered me to pee in front of her, then asked me to lift my breast so she could check for contraband, and then asked me to bend over and cough so she could check my vagina and my anus to see if I had brought anything in. And in that moment, in that first day, When you are strip searched and you are bent over in front of a stranger, within 10 seconds, your life flashes in front of you. And you know instantly that you can't laugh, you can't cry, you can't show any emotion, and that you can never show any emotion for the rest of the time being there. And you have to find a zone that you never had before. So that is your introduction to prison. And since in the last five years, as I interview women, for uh witnesses digital library collection, I can tell you to a person that it's that moment, that first strip search, that people say to themselves, I never want to come back here again. So just to immediately dispel the notion that people want to go back to prison, even for three for three uh, for food, is nuts because nobody wants to go through a strip search and nobody wants to be abused. So I knew inside a prison uh, that I would be doing some work. So one of the things they tell you the first day when you're a new person is, don't ask anybody about their crime. First rule, just don't ask anybody. So of course, I'm an old activist. So I asked everybody about their crime. I spent the entire time in prison talking to people. And the reason that I think that nobody killed me or beat me is because they knew that I was an activist. They sensed that I was helping people writing motions. I was helping people who didn't read English to understand the documents they were getting. My whole being was designed to find out about everybody's case. And as I read the documents from people's cases, I understood something that I would never have known had I not been in prison, which is that at least 50% of the people are there for no reason. They were just, in a room, at the wrong time, in the wrong place. And it's probably higher than that, to be honest, especially in women's prisons. But it radicalized me. Had I never been arrested, I would have retired in around 1997, two years, after, at the time of my arrest, I would have retired. I would be living in East Hampton, I would be doing philanthropy, and I would be calling my senators, going to marches, sending in postcards, participating in you know collecting coats, and doing the things that I thought made me a progressive person, an involved person, and someone who cared. Having been in prison, I can tell you, I look at that as not even touching the surface. And that unless we are willing to, as Martin Luther King said, put our bodies on the line to stop this Herculean horrible um, structure of mass incarceration, we are going to make no changes. We must change from the level of I'll do something to I'll end it. And until we make
0: that jump, it's not gonna end. I wanna come back in a moment to policies about how to change this Herculean mass incarceration system that we have in our country. But Hilly, I wanna ask you first, Evie spoke about Entering prison and not showing any emotion as a survival tactic You serve in a rabbinic role at Central Synagogue, which is really one of the largest Synagogues and Jewish communal institutions in our country a Renowned institution and you also serve and have served as a prison chaplain really two very different experiences what led you to prison chaplaincy work and how do you pastor to community where those who are incarcerated hesitate to show emotion and share emotion?
2: Um, I started um, going in and out of uh, prisons as a, as a teacher and a tutor when I was at um, Divinity School working with men and women who were getting their bachelor's degrees through Boston University's College Behind Bars program. Um, and when I moved to New York, I started teaching with a professor at Manhattan College. Um, he's working on, uh, on Rikers Island, um, teaching a religion class. So I became his TA. Um, and from there, I was also able to, to do some chaplaincy in, um, in New Jersey and New York. I think you know, the question for me is, you know, what does it mean to go inside a prison? What, what is the, the value of that experience for someone who's, who's able to so easily move in and out? And I think Evie, Evie started talking about her experiences as someone on the inside um, in that minute that she was strip searched as being kind of this um, transitional moment. And I think our criminal justice system thrives behind this veil of secrecy. We don't know what happens. Um, if you're not on the inside, you don't know the there's the, the stories, this, the social life, the structure, the oppressive policies. I mean, there's so much mystery, I think, that surrounds those gates um, of prisons. And I think it's it's done intentionally because of just what goes on there. And I think Evie will speak more to that from her own experience. But my, um, my goal, I think, my role a little bit is to, is to create relationships between people who are, who are on the inside and people on the outside, so that when people on the inside come out, they'll have an easier time, that we can break down those barriers together. And so at Central, I've had the opportunity to bring congregants from Central Synagogue to lead Shabbat services on Rikers Island. We were Before COVID, we were doing that monthly. And to bring our congregants and our clergy there is to not only just to see what goes on behind that veil of secrecy, but really to see who's behind the veil and there are people there. There are people who are suffering, who are building community, who are taking college classes, who are staying in touch with their family, their mothers, their fathers, their sons, their brothers, their sisters. Um, And to kind of create that community that transcends those prison walls is a way of breaking down that veil of secrecy. So that's kind of how I balance the two roles of of chaplain and and rabbi.
1: Tonight, Witness is starting its second cohort of what I call the Witness Network, which are women in this case, who have been, who survived sexual violence in prison. There is an enormous problem. I just want to throw this out of sexual violence. It's at every men's prison. It's at every woman's prison. And I tried to look for 10 people and I got about 113 willing to participate in this group. And the stories will be very upsetting to you. Um, And people have to know that when you talk about behind the wall, it's not only the first strip search, you don't know the public has no idea how dangerous it is. You don't go to you go to prison because you allegedly convicted a crime and you're supposed to lose your freedom. You should not be going to prison to put your life at risk or to put your li- or to be raped. Right now in prison, probably the pr- most important issue is that nobody is doing much about the fact that we are dying in prison from COVID, and that there are 70,000 positive cases across 5,000 prisons and jails. We are gonna all die, but you don't see a public uproar, which is very upset, enough of a public uproar to make a difference.
0: I wanted to come back to that actually, how our prison systems have responded to this pandemic. And I think it speaks volumes to how we as a country treat those who are incarcerated or fail to treat them with human dignity when we aren't hearing those stories. When they are, uh, as both of you have said, behind a wall and so it's as if they don't exist, as if their stories are not heard or told as if they are forgotten by all of us. What is it about our country that incarcerates over a quarter of uh, those who are incarcerated Right, I think it's over 25% of those who are in prisons in the world are incarcerated in the United States when we only make up a few percentage points of the world's population.
1: Well, the same, we, the same number, interestingly enough, four to five percent of the world's population, 25% of the world's prison population, that same um, ratio is true for COVID also. So when you say, what is it about our country, that we have four or 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's COVID and 25% of mass incarceration, I think you have your answer. There's not enough caring about human beings in this country. If we cared about each other more, we would stop this from happening.
0: A very controversial policy was passed over 20 years ago, the Crime Bill, and it was uh, meant to show the Democratic Party, specifically uh, President Clinton, who was who president, who signed into law, was tough on crime. What impact has this law had on our criminal justice system and our prison system?
1: At the point in 1994 when this passed, we were already at a high level of mass incarceration. So I think some people confused. it. Mass incarceration did not start in 1994. It started in 1970, when um, in the 70s, when there were only under 200,000 people, maybe 170,000 people in all prisons anywhere, a 10th of the population. And it grew through the 19, I believe it's an 86 drug bill and an 88 drug bill. That's when you saw the rise. What happened with the 1994 is the Democrats did put it on their platform because they needed to be perceived of tough as crime because Bush versus Dukakis, Just before that, um, Dukakis, you saw the Willie Horton story come out and Democrats looked soft on crime and Bush took advantage of that. What this bill did drastically was incentivize states to put more prisons and give them the money to do it. It created mandatory minimums, which meant that instead of going prison for an ounce of pot that's in your pocket for 18 months, you face 30 years and there are people who are still in prison for having a personal use of pot. Even though we sell it in the United States, you have people sitting in prisons, probably 20,000 people who were arrested for marijuana, personal marijuana use. They're still sitting in prisons all over this country. It also did the truth in sentencing meaning you had to serve most of your, like 85% of your time in prison. But it didn't trigger mass incarceration because mass incarceration stayed relatively level. It just put in longer sentences. And, it was, and it's federal legislation. And remember the huge difference between federal and state legislation is that of the 2.3 million people who are in prison, about 200,000 are in federal prisons, about a 10th of the population. And about, uh, and then two million are in states. So if the feds pass any law, it only applies to a very limited number of people. And unless states follow, uh, it has no impact.
0: I wanted to follow up with that. Uh, the most recent criminal justice reform bill that was passed into law was President Trump's First Step Act. And that really focuses on the federal level and federal prisons. Has that had an impact? Or are you suggesting that the impact is small because of the prison population at the federal level is so small? Uh,
1: First Step Act, affectionately known FSA as the First Ship Act, uh, for those of us who opposed it radically. We opposed it radically because Senator Grassley had been working on a bill that was a bipartisan bill for mandatory minimums that had support. And the most egregious part of prison is over criminalization and over sentencing so that the grassley bill would have ended mandatory minimums so to allow the uh, trump to pass a bill which did practically nothing for 2.3 million people um is it was to us a travesty so what did what it and and you have to understand one reason why i don't spend my life doing Legislative work is passing a bill takes enormous amount of blood, sweat and tears. And when you pass it, it can be always rolled back. But worse yet, you have you have two components of a bill that almost never happen: the appropriation and the enforcement. So even though the first step back had um, money set aside for rehabilitation there's less facilities less halfway houses now to go to meaning even if you're eligible to be released from prison you're not going to be released but, and the money that was supposed to go to reform was never appropriated so what it did was let out and uh, let out a couple of thousand people which is great for them but the bad part is that that now gives them a talking point of being the criminal justice reform team when they really did nothing, when this bill really did nothing for us. And there is a risk assessment tool in there, which is notoriously disproportionately skewed against Black and brown people. So we objected to every part of this bill.
0: Heli, I wanted to turn back to you. Rabbinic tradition doesn't actually focus very much on incarcerating individuals. focuses on a justice system that in most extreme cases uh, talks about a death penalty, but actually creates a rabbinic structure that makes that impossible. And in every other case, it focuses instead on restitution, on financial compensation for causing harm to another person or another property. What do we do as Jews with this criminal justice system and this reality that we're facing what is the Jewish response to incarceration?
2: That's a great question. I, I think, you know, the first value to talk about is teshuva, the value of um, repentance, atonement, and return. And to recognize um, that Jewish tradition teaches that once someone has um, served their time, so to, so to speak, is, is, is a full, they, they're entitled to a full return to society. Um, and our policies are just not motivated by that idea of return. I think to, to talk about prison as, as being behind this veil is also to say that it's a form of exile um, and that when people return and they leave, they leave prison and jail, um, I think they're still subject to, to exile. They're still in many ways living in exile. And so one category of policy to talk about is our policies on reentry. Um, how do we treat people when they come out of jail and prison? What, how, how have they, and you can't even talk about rancher without talking about conditions of confinement. What have they had access to on the inside? Is their job training? Is there, is there college programming? Is there high school programming? What kind of learning goes on? Um, and so when people come out, how, you know, are they ready to enter the job market? How do we make that transition? Um, so there's all, you know, all kinds of policies that kind of play into those questions of how to build a system that instead of being motivated by punishment, by racism, by greed, is instead motivated by the value of return. And I also, you know, I think it's really impossible to talk about mass incarceration in America without talking about racism, because the, in, in most places, depending where you are, black and brown people are at least three times more likely to get incarcerated than their white counterparts. And as um, you know, as we know, that crime is committed evenly across races. And so, um, you know, we have to examine why that is and get to that racist root. And to expose that is also then to open up the conversation around policies of mass incarceration to also talk about um, other bills that exist that address America's ra- problem of racism, its original sin. Um, so to look at the reparations bill that's, that's, that's moving through um, Congress right now and where that is. And so I think to broaden this conversation of mass incarceration is also important when we recognize um, where, where that impetus is coming from in our, in our culture, in our country. In our country.
0: One of the challenges is the role that cash bail plays when somebody is arrested. Uh, And oftentimes when they are arrested and awaiting trial, uh, they, uh, it is alleged that they have committed a crime, but they have not yet um, been found guilty uh, of said crime. They end up sitting in prison for years, waiting for the trial. Evie, you spoke to how it was uh, over a decade, you know, of that experience for you since you were arrested. Um, I know that California passed a law that gets rid of cash bail. New York has been working on such a bill as well. Uh, What would it mean to get rid of cash bail in our criminal justice system? So
1: let's go back to a system of racism that's been developed to capture people before, during, and after. So let's say you did commit a crime, and you if you were redoing this system, would you invent an entire system where you have 100,000 people going through jails who've not yet been convicted of crimes a year? Why would they go to jail if they haven't been convicted? So I'll just tell you my own story, but my own short version, which is when I was arrested and I had to be arraigned, I had to go to court. And I was sitting, I was the only white woman, I was sitting with about a dozen black women. And I can tell you, and I didn't know then what I know today, but I knew at that moment when I was in court that there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to be released on my own recognizance, which is ROR. But what stunned me is that the black women in front of me didn't have. There was never going to be that option for them. We were all coming with different issues. There was no murderers. There were all, uh, you know, financial crimes, and they were all immediately sent into a cell on, in in the in the same building as the courthouse. I was released, and every moment of. Me being exposed to that system was an education on the extent of the racism that exists in this culture. When it comes to cash bail, it just shouldn't exist. You know, you, it, it shouldn't exist, nothing should exist that says we get to hold you, whatever crime, no matter what it is, we get to hold you if we want to, and it's up to our discretion. Because it means that if you're a rich defendant, you get to walk out. And if you're a poor defendant, you're in prison. The fact that we have debtors prisons, which are our jails in 2020, this should be disgusting to us, disgusting enough to say no. And the fact that cash bail got passed in New York and then rolled back, got passed in California and got rolled back so that provisions in it were worse than the original bill, tells you where people really are at, are inaction, our willingness to segregate, our willingness to maintain our life as status quo and not change it is what blocks us from changing the entire system.
0: Aside from bringing groups of congregants to lead Shabbat services, Heli, what would you advise the Jewish community, the organized Jewish community can be doing to both see people, to, to acknowledge one's human dignity and to take an active role in the fights to really create a more just criminal justice system?
2: I think we could start by, you know, there's, there's organizations that are doing this work already. And I think one step is just to support those organizations like Witness to Mass Incarceration, um, like Exodus Transnational Communities based in Harlem. Um, there are there are places that help people with transition. They help people, legal services, Bronx defenders, Brooklyn defenders, and so to support that work already is just to recognize that um, this work is getting done. For the Jewish community, I think it's important to, as we're talking about policies, to understand, um, you know, the kind of the scope of criminal justice reform, what that means. And so there's, um, we've, we've hinted at it. These, these policies kind of fall under different buckets. There's pretrial reforms that have to do with, with sentencing, with bail. Um, there's policies that look at the conditions of confinement like policies trying to eliminate solitary confinement um, and then there's policies that happen um, with parole and probation reform and to look at what it's like for someone to, re- to re-enter society and what what they what obstacles are in their way um, and so I think to make sure that we' are addressing each of these buckets to understand that all these things are related to each other and that we have to we have to know policies and we also have to make sure that we um, are hearing people's stories that we do the work. We do the reading. We do the. We go out. We meet people. Um, and we support the great work that's already being done.
1: What's particularly hard is that in the last three or four months, a million and a half jobs in the nonprofit sector has been lost to COVID, and many of those are the organizations that work on this issue. And I am a small organization, and I look for funding regularly. And what you see when you look up foundations is that they're closed for the rest of the year. Don't bother to apply because their donations are down. We're in a very dangerous time that emotionally, whether we want change or not, we are dealing with an economy and a country and a situation that's difficult. And then just to um, piggyback on something uh, Rabbi Hilly said, uh, when it comes to employment, Number one, when we walk out, we're not all mentally well. We have just been traumatized. So you can't walk into a job day one. And there needs to be, from my point of view and from my perspective and from my own experience, I'll just backtrack and say, I spent 16 months homeless and penniless until I ran into a friend I knew as a baby in the women's movement who got me into an apartment. and. And when she realized I wasn't able to get a job, even though I had a 30-year work history, uh, she gave me a thousand, she said, I'm giving, gonna give you $1,000 a month for 12 months. Um, so I could use my social security to pay the rent and I could eat. And giving me that safety net of one year allowed me to start witness, allowed me to stabilize. In fact, getting the key and being in my own space for five minutes and locking the door was probably the highlight of 20 years. So when we think about reentry and helping people, we have to really help them. Because right now, the phone calls that I get every day uh, for people that have no money, 50 million Americans are unemployed in just two months. And prior to that, 27% of our population was unemployed and 43% of black women were unemployed. We're at the back of the line. So those statistics prior to COVID, it's gonna be 80% on, people are not gonna hire us. And we need to think differently. We need a year, we need a year, most of us, to deal with the trauma, to figure out what we're gonna do with the rest of our lives, to learn how to use a computer.
0: Does that come from nonprofits, from religious-based Institutions, or ideally, is that a policy Does that no. come from this uh, revamped, more just criminal justice system? Well, we're
1: willing, according to Scott Stringer's report, we're willing to spend $337,000 per person to incarcerate. And we're, we spend $420 million to recidivate uh, 35,000 people back and forth from New York City to New York State. So where does the money come from? It comes from if you give each person, if you, not give, but if you set aside $30,000 for one year, so a person has rent money and they don't get the money, they get their bills paid, money and food and bills, it's a whole lot cheaper for us to set aside $30,000 a year per person than it is for us to spend $337,000 so that correctional officers get double pay and overpay and triple pay. So it's a math problem, and it's fiscally responsible, and it does a lot for us because it gives us, it buys us the time. Some women are, uh, my group tonight, the average length of time incarcerated is 15 to 20 years. I'm, I'm speaking with women who are incarcerated 30 and 40 years. They have not been in this culture. It is a stunning shock and there is actually a TV show, a short series called Rectify. If somebody wanted to watch the first five episodes, his experience of coming back after 25 years is probably the most accurate thing I've ever seen. You're you're walking into an unfamiliar, unsafe, you feel unsafe, unprotected world, and we need to feel more protected. So yes, you can you know, shove people into a job or put them on this or that because they have to survive. But is that the best way? No, not in my opinion. My opinion is we need to put our
2: energy into into saving that time. I I think what you're talking about is so amazing that, you know, this, what is COVID exposed? You know, what is so plainly in front of us now? And it's the fact that um, our system was already, our system is already broken. It's been broken and we are full of inequality and um, and that, um, you know, even just to say that COVID disproportionately affects black and brown communities. I mean, this is, there is so much injustice that it's just raging in our, in our cities, in our states. Um, and I think what we're called to do right now is to reimagine public safety. I think the obstacle right now to passing criminal justice reform often is public safety, this call of public safety. What if we let people out and they recommit crimes? Um, you know, it's a threat to public safety. Um, you know, we have to reimagine what public safety means right now. And, the, and public safety right now is to make sure that um, that people are, are safe and healthy and that when they return home, they're not bringing COVID into communities and that people who are going in are not bringing COVID into prisons because there's a, a deadly disease running about. Um, and public safety is keeping everyone safe and healthy right now. So how do we use criminal justice reform policies already to make sure that that's happening, to reimagine that idea of, of public safety? And another idea of public safety is Equality in our public schools, access to education, access to technology, how do we, you know, this, the issue of mass incarceration is one that just speaks to the broad inequality um, that faces our entire society. And I think you asked about the role of Jewish community. But one thing we must do is we must speak with moral authority. We are a tradition that, you know, God gives us an order that is beyond the order of, of people. We have a divine order and what it means to value and uphold human dignity in that order. And we have to speak with that moral authority and we do it with our brothers and sisters um, in different faith traditions. And we, we have to do it in coalition. And we also must follow the work of advocates and people who are directly impacted by the justice system. We have to um, know when to step up and speak with moral authority and when to um, you know be in a meeting and be in coalition and then when to, to take a step back and let people lead who know who have experienced this directly um, and follow them and follow their lead on policy um, and follow their lead on, on service work and, and support their organizations because it's people who have these direct experiences who know firsthand what needs to change in the system.
0: We have a president who uh, tweets multiple times a day the words law and order, suggesting that he is in full support of all aspects of our current criminal justice system from policing to incarceration. How would you respond to those in the Jewish community who believe that there are consequences to our actions and somebody goes to jail because they did something wrong and they need to be quote-unquote punished for what they did wrong?
2: I think it's a it's a great question. I think we have to remember, um, first of all, our, our tradition teaches us that we all kind of walk the line between sin and merit, that we are all in some ways constantly walking this path of teshuva um, and that we ourselves there's no kind of line between those who commit sin and those who don't we we are all in that together um and i think to remember that of course you know there 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 are times when um you know our justice system um is working and that's you know we we maintain that but we're you know we're told to pursue justice in a just way and so to think about fair sentencing and to think about how we bring people back and to make sure that our policies are 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 motivated by um you no, know, not necessarily punishment, but our policies are motivated by grace and by forgiveness and by compassion, and we that we are we are upholding human dignity as we carry out you know justice, and to also say, you know, justice and these questions of law and order and public safety again to, to hit home the point they they start um, they start when someone is born. I mean, this is. You know, public safety is, is not about having more people in prison and jail. That's that's incredibly dangerous to our to our society. It's incredibly dangerous for people who are on the inside. Public safety is about creating just and equitable conditions for every everyone, every community to thrive in our in our in our country. We spend too much time
1: responding to events as opposed to being proactive. For things to change, I'm in a lot of, I I work a lot with the Jewish community, and I must tell you that when I'm in a room of people where there's a judge and a prosecutor and a criminal defense attorney, they are considered the experts in criminal justice, not me. And there's got to be an awareness no, you put us in prison, you are not the experts. And we give a lot of credibility to people who've been part of a system that's incarcerated, and now, if, they, if they, uh, they want to be the leaders. And they're not. And if you're involved with any groups where someone is the director, the president, the producer, I don't care what it is, and there's not a formally incarcerated person leading your so-called criminal justice efforts, then you're not going to understand the issues. Because at base, no one in the Jewish community wants to consider themselves a racist. But the truth is, we are. And until we understand that and how we are and confront and become anti-racists, in order to become an anti-racist, you better understand your own racism. And that means, would you send your child to a school in Harlem? And if the answer to that question is no, better look inside and better know who you are. And I'm not saying that's a bad or good thing. I'm saying we've got to get honest about what's really going on. We can't talk about doing things and not do them ourselves. Um, would you bust your kid? There a, there's fights all the time for, for segregation. We don't have segregation. So I think we have to go really back to basics because I think that mass incarceration is symptomatic of a much larger problem. And if I may um, add, something really disturbing to me is this? We had a after George Floyd died, we had an incredible movement for, a, for a month about defunding police, and most people did not, of course, understand what that meant. Um, and then, in the last month since then, you have not heard a word on media about defunding police. But what you have seen is the New York Police Commissioner going online to tell you and other police commissioners in every city to tell you how unsafe you are because crime is back. Now, mind you, they didn't tell us what crime is back, but they said it's up 65 percent. But if I have one bowling ball and I get a second bowling ball and I have 100 percent increase in bowling ball, it doesn't mean a lot of people are committing crimes. It just means one person has a bowling ball. And so all of a sudden, where did defund police go? And why is every police commissioner? And there's all of a sudden big crime in every city. What they don't tell you is crime is down, but their shootings are up by a percentage. They are maximizing their ability to give you fear. And they always use the word public safety. And you know what? We're less safe with the police who have the guns than we are with people Who are in poverty and being released from prison. They are not unsafe. They may be starving and they may steal a Coca-Cola from, or a soda from McDonald's, but they're not going to kill you.
2: Exactly. I think, you know, our our moment right now calls us to redefine public safety in a way that includes public health. And public health includes homelessness, it includes hunger, um, it includes... Inequal access to education, and so there's so many things that go into this conversation. Into to, you know the term public safety, I think we we must redefine that. Um, and I also want to say too, Evie, along the lines of what you're what you're talking about, oftentimes policies, criminal justice reform policies, um, when they are passed and we and we celebrate, there's there's usually carve outs, carve outs around. Um, Violent offenders, and so people who are considered violent offenders, whatever their crime is, if it falls into that category of a violent offense, um, they're often left out of a reform bill. And so to think about cash bail, who's eligible for cash bail? Well, someone being accused of certain violent crimes are often not eligible to, to even if the question of cash bail doesn't even matter. They're they're going to be remanded. Um, and I think again, this conversation around fear, we we must when we think about um, you know violent crime, especially people who've been in prison for 20, 30 years on a violent crime. Those people are, are often prison elders. They have their mentors. They are the leaders in communities. They are the ones bringing change and um, making change in prisons, bringing education programs. And so when we think about you know, violent offense, we also have to make sure that we're you know, opening our, our minds to that term and not just creating a whole bucket of people um, who are not eligible for reform, who are not eligible to come out, who are not eligible for, 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 um, for, for bail.
1: So So Brian Stevenson, I think, said it very well when he said, if I I lie, it doesn't make me a liar. If I steal, it doesn't make me a thief. And if I kill, it doesn't make me a killer. We really have to get these concepts. I stand with violent criminals the same way I stand with everybody else. And just to piggyback on what you said, all reform and every effort that's made is only to the benefit of what people consider to be low-hanging fruit. But the truth is that the word, we should discuss the word violent crime um, because if you have a gun in your house, if you're arrested in your car, which many women I know were, and the police have warrants to search your house, and let's say the drugs you had were in your car, what they do instead of you having an 18-month, session, um, an 18-month sentence for possession, they find the gun that's in your house that's unconnected to the crime. They charge you with a gun, a gun charge, which adds seven years and makes it a violent crime. There are people in prison who are called violent criminals that are not. Um, It's a technicality. But if you're 17, you killed somebody and you get let out of prison 30 years later, you're not the same person. You're middle age or you're senior. You're not the same. So preventing people who are, who have been in prison for decades is crazy, it's time to release all the older people, no matter what their crime is, because they physically will die in there. If they they don't die from COVID, they'll be lucky, we'll be lucky to see anybody over the age of 60 still alive in
0: prison by the end of this year. Judaism focuses on both tzedek and and chesed, these ideas of justice and mercy. We tend to fight for justice as talking about equality and equity Where scripture and rabbinic tradition often looks at justice as consequence for one's actions, where chesed, kindness, or or mercy really is the idea that we understand people make mistakes and we're there to help people up when they have fallen. To bring them back up, to hold them up at times, to understand that those who are in vulnerable positions make decisions that are different than those who are not in vulnerable positions, and I think about our quote unquote justice system that doesn't take into account mercy. You certainly have uh, the commuting of sentences, where right that we we have a. President who commutes Roger Stone's sentence, who sets him free. But we don't think about those who have been incarcerated for obscene charges, for because of mandatory minimums or something like that. And really, we're thinking about the unjust nature of our justice system. Hilly, I wanna turn it back over to you because I wanna ask you the, the theological challenge. Our Torah demands that we pursue justice and concludes then that the world that God created, assuming that our listeners are those who believe in uh, some divine being, the world that God created then by default is not a just world if we are commanded to pursue that justice. What do we do with that idea that the world at default is an unjust world? And what does it mean that we are divinely commanded to create a world that God himself did not create.
2: I think our texts recognize that to be human is to err. It is to make mistakes. Um, it's to fall off a path of righteousness. That's, that's what it means to be human, because we're not perfect. And so I think, you know, we do have to wrestle with ethical and moral questions. There's no doubt and our, our texts do that. Um, and we see that conversation evolving over thousands of years. Um, and we need to be part of that, that generations-long conversation. How do we create a more just world? How do we take into account people's circumstances and context, which our texts show us they do? Um, how do we how do we learn from that? And how do we um, legislate today? So it's of course um, we, we recognize that 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 justice, you know, is in in both cases in terms of creating a more just world, but also a justice system necessary because that speaks to human nature. I think I think of God, um, you know, from a liberation perspective, that God is always on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized. Um, that God is God is with us in the streets fighting for justice. That God, um, borrowing from, from Kelly Brown Douglas and from James Cone, that, that looking at George Floyd's body on the ground is to look at God's body on the ground to see God in that moment as well. Um, and so, to to to, if we can use our theological imagination and to connect oppression and marginalization across time and space and to see who is oppressed now in our society um, and to find god there i think we should then build our ethical commandments from there what do we do if, if that's if that's god's body um there's a great uh, there's a great midrash um and it comes from from deuteronomy uh, based on a verse in deuteronomy and it's the idea that we don't leave a, a body hanging on a tree overnight, that we would need to take that body off the tree as quickly as possible. Um, and the, the rabbis offer a, a midrash on that. Why is that? Um, and they give a parallel. They say that there's uh, there's two twin brothers. One is a king um, and one is a thief. Um, and that the thief commits a crime and the thief's body is hanging. Um, and that everyone sees the thief's body and then thinks that's our king. That's that's the king's body. Um, and I'm called to think that that body is the body of, of we're made in the image of God, that that People think that God is hanging on that tree, that that is how sacred we are, that we are vessels of, of divine light. And so I think, you know, building from a, from a point of liberation theology, that, that we have to um, be challenged to see ourselves and our brothers and sisters in, in struggle um, and recognize that struggle as our own and that we are just called to, to build that world.
0: Looking at November's upcoming election, Evie, I know you said that you like to not focus on policy because even if a bill becomes law, you have the appropriations and you have the implementation of said law. Are there specific policies that are at stake, that are on the line uh, on the local, state, and federal level this coming November? When I say that I don't work
1: directly, I I support everybody who works on policy. It's just that, for me, I think there needs to be... um, a lot more energy put into helping people directly in reentry, which is one of my focuses. We need to we need to figure out how to help people coming out because if you come out and you get lost within two weeks, you're going back. If you have no foodie, have no place to go. Um, but with regard to, um, I think this is a crucial election on many levels and it requires each citizen to participate in our democracy meaning you have to do you can't we can't have 40 or 30 or 20% of this population voting this year
0: there are still many states that prevent those who have f- formerly been incarcerated in voting uh, i believe all states uh, although you can correct me if i'm wrong do not permit those who are currently incarcerated from voting that their fundamental rights are taken from them, uh, what it means to be an American is taken from them when they are in prison. How do we change that system so that those who are incarcerated and those who have been incarcerated can be more actively involved in the democratic process? Because Hilly, as you said, part of our job is to speak up and part of our job is sometimes to stand there as allies and step back and allow those whose shared experiences uh, need to be heard the most are the ones that we need to prop up. How do we make sure that they're involved in the democratic process?
1: The biggest problem you have is nobody who's incarcerated knows whether they have the right to vote inside or out. If you arrest somebody at age 17 and they're in prison 40 years, they really don't know what they're permitted and not permitted to do we could the public could help every state is different you know there were there are some states that outright deny it some states after five years some states when you're off probation and probation is usually federal it, it's it changes but the basic question is why is it taken away i, I wouldn't fight this battle by state i'd fight this battle as a fundamental huge right that They have no right to take away. I mean, what's the logic behind taking away our vote? Because we committed a crime? Well, in that case, I want to look at your tax returns. You who are not in prison, and I want to see what you wrote off and whether you did that correctly. Because if you didn't, I don't want to send you to jail, but I think I'll take away your right to vote.
2: I also, I think Evie's question of, you know, the idea that people don't know whether they can vote or not, I think is, is incredibly important to note. And that one role, I think, of faith communities, if we're thinking about voting and getting the vote out, um, one thing is to figure out who can vote in your state and make sure everybody knows that to go and canvass um, and help register people. You actually can vote if you're incarcerated, um, I believe, in Vermont and Maine, which I think is just, you know, if, it, if it's done there, why not everywhere? But also to say that, um, you know, one, I think we're in a, we're in a pandemic Um, And nothing is as it has been really a lot of, you know, so to say that this is not what we do, or this is, you know, there's so many obstacles, we can reimagine an entire system right now we really have this is a moment to reimagine um, and to rebuild um, more justly, because we've just seen the tremendous inequality on display. Also, just to say, I think on the federal level this year, this, you know, election cycle, um, you know, one thing I'm interested in is the restoration of Pell Grants, the full restoration of Pell Grants, um, so people who are incarcerated can attend college while they're incarcerated and um, prepare them for their reentry. And I also, I think that, you know, a hot topic this year is defunding the police, that cry, and, you know, to understand what that means, um, is really about reallocating funds, to say that, we have long relied on police to serve in so many different roles to serve as social worker and as, um, you know, emergency medical technician. And that it's, it's, we have to rethink that because it's putting pressure on everybody in very, um, harmful and traumatic ways. And so to, to think about people um, who are running for office, their platforms around allocation of funding in police departments, um, I think is also an important thing for this year.
1: I don't think the system is broken. (laughs) I don't think the system's not working. I think it's working
2: perfectly. It says it's working as it was meant to to work.
1: I think that what you're describing is what's been planned. Um, And I think people are under the illusion that it's, I think this is a grand scheme uh, to create a system pre-detention. They installed an entire system of pre-detention and tell me why we need parole and probation. Tell me why after 30 years in prison, you need another 10 years to report to, to, report to an officer. You've, com- you've paid for your crime, and you should be released, period. Why do you have to be on parole? Why did I go to prison for two years and have to be on parole, probation for three, and have to ask permission to visit my mother from New York to New Jersey? that is a jobs program that we have law enforcement has created jobs programs in and structures that and when you say i don't know why the police are social workers because they plan to be because when i went to school if you were bad you went to the to the uh, principal's office but the police in extending their authority chose to go into the schools chose to be chose all these roles. It is not an accident that they've in, situated themselves and empowered themselves
0: to such a large degree. We allowed this to happen. I think Hilly said at best that in a pandemic where we have to rethink everything, this is the perfect opportunity for us to really rethink uh, and reimagine and re-envision what a true just society can be and can look like. You've both given us so much to think about in terms of mass incarceration and the problems with mass incarceration in this country and what we can do and how November's election can really impact what our criminal justice system looks like in the future. Thank you again to Evie liwak who's the founder and executive director of Witness to Mass Incarceration. You can follow Evie on Twitter, at witness, T-O-M-I, and Haley is not on Twitter going to have to work on that. But thank you as well to Rabbi Hilly Haber. Uh, I
1: would love if people would go to the website and join. So that would be witness to massincarceration.org. Just join so we ha- we have can you can be updated on the things that we're
0: working on. Thank you to both of you for joining us. Thank you to all of our listeners for being a part of this important conversation. Until next time, everybody stay safe. Election Day is just a couple of weeks away.